This is the Voice Podcast Network. Welcome back to Hilltop Horror. I'm Elspeth. I'm Lucy. And for our first episode of the semester, we're going to be discussing censorship and how it's affected the history of horror movies. So I think we're going to start off with um, just a fun question to settle us in. Uh, So I think the question this week is, what is the most shocking scene of uh, pretty much any horror movie you've ever seen? This is a tough question. Um, I'm going to say, spoilers, the ending of... The 1973 Wicker Man, uh, when you have the twist and it turns out he's been set up all along to be the sacrifice and he sees the Wicker Man statue and then the cult is just dancing around him and singing as he's burning alive and like yelling scripture. Not spoiler alert. I'm sorry. (laughs) Definitely watch it. Don't watch the Nicolas Cage version. That's it. (laughs) I think the thing that shocked me most, there's two things that immediately come to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, the first being that scene in Hereditary, where her you just head can't. falls off. I was so shocked. It was like that moment of shock where you kind of start laughing because you don't know what you just watched. But then you realize you're laughing to such a horrific situation. Oh, I was just paralyzed. I think I like started crying and I couldn't move. And then you're just stuck with like the brother in the car yeah. for like an unbroken shot for almost a minute. I know. And another shocking one was the scene in The Exorcist when Reagan stabs her general region with the cross. Because not that compared to Hereditary and all the other things, it was particularly scary, but you didn't really expect it from a 1970, what, 73 film? And mm-hmm. continuing continue with how the movie was progressing before that, it was just came out of left field, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. And we're actually going to talk about The Exorcist today. Uh, because it's a movie that has been subject to a lot of scrutiny uh, because of how shocking the content was for that time. So if people are familiar with the history of censorship in Hollywood, they've probably heard of the Hayes Code. Um, So the Hayes Code uh, was basically in effect from 1934 to 1968, um, and it's pretty much this self-imposed... Uh, set of guidelines uh, that the MPPDA uh, made filmmakers adhere to, and it prohibited certain depictions of uh, nudity, sexual situations, uh, crime, even different types of love. Uh, So obviously, same-sex love, even interracial relationships couldn't be depicted on screen in this era. Um, so basically, uh, the curator of the Australian, uh, Museum of the Cinematic Moving Image, uh, said that basically this means we have a whole lot of married couples sleeping in separate beds for at least 20 years. Yes, well, the iconic I Love Lucy series, Mm -hmm. um... They, uh, I think Lucy and Ricky are sleeping in different beds. And since my name is Lucy, everybody forced me to watch it growing <laughs> up. And so when I was a kid, I remember thinking that was like, extremely weird. But I guess now. Yeah. And it, it's so interesting because all films had to like obtain a certificate from the Motion Pictures Association before they could be released. And also it's this really is excessive. the era of big studios. Oh. So studios are responsible for all their movies. They want to make a profit. 
Um, and what this really indicated, like culturally, was this return to traditional values, because it was obviously right after the Great Depression and World War One. Um, so it's basically just this mass exclusion of any narrative that challenged traditional gender roles, sexuality, or like morality. However, filmmakers and artists really push the boundaries of the Hays Code. And I think when we think about really effective and relevant horror, a lot of it is about pointing out things that make people uncomfortable on a moral or psychological level. Uh, so filmmakers, because they had the set of guidelines, they kind of had a list of buttons that they knew they could push. And so it's crazy how much filmmakers actually got away with. Um, like, it might surprise you that Psycho actually came out when the Hays Code was still in effect. Um, and if you think about the storyline of Psycho, it's about this sexually liberated woman. She's having an affair. She steals money from her boss and goes on the run so that she can be with her lover. And then she gets murdered by a man who is dressing as his mother. Uh, it's an incredibly provocative and incredibly scary movie. Um, but because it ticks all of those boxes of what wasn't allowed to be shown on film explicitly and somehow still got approval, it was really effective in delivering its narrative. The horror genre in particular uh, was really hit hard by the Hays Code because there were so many restrictions on what could be shown in terms of violence and gore. Um, what did we consider horror back then? So pre-Hays Code, you have all of the classic universal monster movies. So monster movies were considered horror because I feel like if you, a King Kong, a classic horror mm -hmm. movie, and it was made in the early 30s, you wouldn't really consider that horror these days. It'd be more so action-adventure. Yeah, definitely. Um, again, it was very much depending on what audiences were used to seeing. I think, like, the first, a lot of people consider the first horror movie to be The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari, which is this, like, kind of obscure, black-and-white, German-expressionist silent movie. Um, and the imagery and the music is very haunting and creepy. Um, so that's kind of a definitive entry. But I think a, what a lot of the classic monster movies do well is they adopt classic gothic literature. Um, so you have all of the universal monster movies coming out in like late 1920s, early 1930s. So you have Dracula, Frankenstein, King Kong, uh, the Mummy, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. Like a lot of these things come from literature, specifically from the gothic genre. I think it's that's super interesting because I took a class like freshman fall mm -hmm. and it talks about specifically the gothic genre um, in one unit. And it was defined as, I don't know if it was women or people in general being trapped in their home. It has a very distinct nature of being trapped exactly. somewhere, mm -hmm. which is interesting how when you think of all these um, like King Kong movies, when you're thinking about these action adventure being chased by this monster, you are being trapped into this universe. Isn't you have to get out? You know, I, I feel like that's a weird mm -hmm. way of putting it. But whenever I watch these, I was like, I have to get out of here. Like this person has to get out of the situation. So I guess gothic is more applied to the situational, not necessarily like the house and the setting specific. Yeah, definitely. I think. Like you were saying, the gothic has a lot to do with this sense of like entrapment in your environment. Like the environment itself is oppressive. 
Um, and what monster movies do, especially like the original like werewolf movie, I know, um, really pioneered practical effects and body horror that was being seen on screen for the first time. Because um, it's this commentary on human nature, what separates a human from an animal, and monsters bridge that gap. Uh, so those films were very revolutionary for their time. What year was Night of the Living Dead? I thought that was early 60s, right? That was, yeah, I think early 60s. So that would also have been under the Hayes Code. Which is really interesting because, again, that really captures uh, the gothic genre. Mm-hmm. But as well, how did it get away with showing people being eaten on the screen? I feel like that was very much graphic in the physical sense, um, not necessarily in the mental or sexual sense, but very violent uh, compared to the other movies of its time. Definitely. There are definitely outliers like Night of the Living Dead and like Psycho, um, where you do have, especially for the time, what would have been considered really graphic and frightening. Um, So definitely the way that the Hayes Code was enforced had this leniency to it, uh, but mainly it forced filmmakers to operate within a certain set of guidelines. And once those restrictions were taken away, we kind of see this flourishing. Like if you look at like later Romero films, the level of gore that he was able to depict in like Day of the Dead as opposed to Night of the Living Dead when you go forward just a few years. One thing I'm also wondering is, was this, were these um, guidelines more imposed by the government or the people in power or they're kind of more widely accepted and people actually want them in their lives because of how society was going? That's an interesting question. So it was self-imposed within the film industry. So it wasn't the government, but it was a regulatory body that kind of oversaw all of the productions that studios were undertaking. Because within the studio system, everything was super like systematic. Um, everything had a lot of professional and commercial oversight. Um, so basically, not only would a film that people didn't think would be commercially successful um, would not be made, uh, but also any movie that people thought would be offensive just was not seen as a profitable venture. So this set of guidelines really restricted what people were able to do because any film that violated these guidelines wouldn't be able to be screened. So people who were overseeing the script writing and the filmmaking process were very conscious uh, that these guidelines were in place. But again, filmmakers uh, knew that they could get away with things under the system. There are films that I think in hindsight we would say maybe implicitly uh, like align with the traditional values that the Hays Code represents because in violating Hays Code regulations, they depict a certain marginal group in society as the antagonists. I wonder if, I'm not saying the Hays Code is necessarily the best thing in the world, but did it start this theme of like implicit horror that we see today and how I feel like whenever I think of the scariest movies I've seen it's not necessarily outright gore and horror and like monsters it's something that like you don't see do you think the Hayes Code started this or do you think it's something that was kind of just human nature that is an obvious um, horror tactic I 
think you can make an argument that the Hays Code restrictions prompted a lot of horror filmmakers to play around with like what could be implied visually and leaving things ambiguous. Right at the beginning of the Hays Code period, uh, the movie Black Cat is a really good example of this. Uh, because it's mostly psychological horror. It's basically these two actors, um, and there's this increasing emotional tension. Um, but at the very end of the film, it's implied that one of the characters gets skinned alive. Nothing is shown, but the implications and the sound design and like the shadows uh, make it implicit that that's happening. So definitely... That was a film that pushed the boundaries of what content could be suggested in a film, even if it wasn't outright shown. And I think even if you look at post-Haze Code movies, which we're going to talk about, um, I think there is an argument that uh, during the Haze Code, people saw how effective uh, leaving things up to the audience's imagination could be. And then they kind of continued that trend, even though they could have been a lot more graphic. Um, but again, those were two different approaches that split off. Uh, I'd actually love to get into post Haze Code movies because I think something that really defined and revolutionized this era of filmmaking is that home video uh, made filmmaking a lot more accessible, uh, particularly like people were like freelancing porn and they were making horror B-movies, uh, sometimes labeled video nasties even, uh, characterized by extreme gore and practical effects. Obviously this was all practical, um, but people had never seen anything like it before, so a lot of times they were mistaken for snuff films and banned. So that was this right before the end of the Haze Code or right after? This is kind of at the tail end, so okay. like late 60s, but definitely during the 70s. The 70s was a big era um, because film equipment was more accessible. So people were making horror movies on their own. People were making adult films on their own. Like if you saw the movie X that came out a couple of years ago, yeah. it's about this era, right? It's this mm -hmm. like freelance porn crew and they're just shooting a movie with a single camera mm -hmm. on location. Um, that was a good horror movie. Which is interesting in, like, the context of the Hays Code, because it was so, the movie itself was so graphic, mm -hmm. and it was so violent that it's an interesting thing to think about. Definitely, and that's a movie where, that movie is very much inspired by the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It takes some elements directly and references from it, um, but we're actually going to talk about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre a little bit later. Uh, because I think it's interesting if you trace the evolution of, like, gore and violence in film from that movie to today. Because reflecting on Texas Chainsaw, there's relatively little on-screen violence, but you feel like you see a lot. But there's almost no blood in the movie. So after the Hays Code was effectively lifted and there was less explicit regulation on what could be shown in film... We have this concept of a moral panic that arises, and this is especially interesting as it relates to horror because moral panics are both something that has limited the distribution of horror movies, but has also inspired their subject matter. 
uh, if we think of horror as like a reactionary genre that's meant to be provocative, uh, it basically is a subversion or allegory for whatever the kind of social fear is at the time uh, because it wants to challenge traditional values. So has this been like a concept that's recurring throughout movie history? Like I'm thinking back to King Kong. Um, I'm trying to like think what could that pot like what how could that relate because obviously these people get inspiration from somewhere they're not just pulling it out of their ass um so i wonder where king kong was inspired i think there's scholarship on like the very like racist origins of king kong it's about this yeah that makes sense kind of invader who preys on like white women and like storms and destroys new york i think it's anti-immigrant sentiment but there's i don't i'm not well read enough on that mm-hmm. subject I just know that that interpretation is something that exists but basically this idea of a moral panic was introduced by Stanley Cohen in his 1972 book Folk Devils and Moral Panics the creation of mods and rockers and the term moral panic loosely describes a sociological phenomena where people become preoccupied with trying to improve deviance or degeneracy I'm putting these in air quotes <laughs> They can't see it in society uh, and its adverse social effects. Uh, So agents of moral panic that perpetuate this kind of fear of any niche subculture that's uh, presumed to be degenerate. Um, Think mainly like the punk rock subculture, grunge, youth culture. Um, But the kind of social forces that are exacerbating this fear Uh, include the mass media, moral entrepreneurs, basically people who just take on a cause and they they lobby politically or uh, they go on social campaigns. Also societal control culture, so we might see actual uh, legislative regulation trying to control this behavior. And then, of course, the general public. So according to Cohen's model, uh, moral panics follow a three-stage pattern. So first there's an exaggeration and distortion of the threat. Um, So in the case of horror movies, um, there's obviously a lot of discourse surrounding if depictions of violence on screen uh, lead to more violent crime. Well, was um, Cohen's book, was it like supposed to be academic or um, did it take a specific side? It's... It's a work of nonfiction. I wouldn't say it's, it's an academic text. It's very much meant for like people who are generally interested in sociology, but not like a super interested audience. Okay. Um, but it does definitely make the case that moral panics are irrational. That's very okay. much its thesis. But it tries to identify these different elements um, because again, it was mainly about this like uh rocker subculture basically anything that was viewed as subversive Mm -hmm. or challenging traditional norms um made people who really clung to those traditional norms very concerned about the state of social morality that reminds me of jennifer's body a lot because i think the people Mm -hmm. who kidnapped jennifer are is this band this like rocker band that turns Mm -hmm. into a cult and like gives her to the devil or something like that but like starts the show um starts the movie so that's interesting how it's still, like, very much, like, the rocker subgenre of 
them being e- not evil, but like the the start of bad things is still present in what early two thousand tens. Definitely, and I think a lot of that comes down to like the adoption of like occult imagery, uh, especially within like heavy metal. But we also see that in horror movies. Uh, and there are actually certain horror movies that responded to this moral panic in particular. For instance, Trick or Treat um, in 1986, which is basically about uh, a heavy metal wrecker that would play backwards, like play some kind of demonic summoning chant. And Ozzy Osbourne makes a cameo as an artist who was, of course he does. who whose songwriting borrows heavily from ideas of uh, the gothic or the occult mm-hmm. um, who was often accused of promoting Satanism yeah. in his audience. The progression of moral panics is starts with this exaggeration and distortion of the threat where it's just blown completely out of proportion and then it's this kind of projection of what people think the consequences will be of failing to address the issue. Horror movies in particular have a very interesting history when it comes to moral panics. Um, For instance, in the 1970s and 80s in Britain, uh, there was this activist named Mary Whitehouse, um, and she uh, spearheaded what was called the Clean Up TV campaign, where she basically accused the BBC of having permissive content standards, um, particularly when it came to um, depictions of same-sex relationships or other material that would have been deemed to be indecent by conservatives at the time. I want to look up what year she died because I would love for her to just watch HBO Max. That would be wonderful. (laughs) No, she's very much like... I would call her the British Anita Bryant. Oh, she died in 2001, so not so. She wasn't able to see a Game of Thrones. That's disappointing. (laughs) But, yeah, so at this time in Britain, obviously the accessibility of home video cameras allowed a lot of filmmakers to get their start making these B-movies, which were super low budget. They were often distributed underground or just directly through video stores. Uh, They never, most never really got a theatrical release. But Mary Whitehouse really perpetuated this moral panic surrounding these types of films, um, arguing that not only were the, was the content indecent, but it would also uh, inspire more violent crime, especially among youth. She actually declared a personal war on uh, Sam Raimi's Evil Dead which came out in 1981. Did she make any headway with that? No. She she, <laughs> she didn't uh, get it banned in the UK, although that was a movie that was banned in well, several countries. As we can see, given they just released The Evil That Rises, they didn't. she didn't do a very good job. So No, definitely not. Although it's interesting, because there's also a remake of Evil Dead in 2013, and that did get banned in some countries. Really? Yeah, not the UK, but I think, like... Finland, mm-hmm. Ukraine, um, just some some countries uh, deemed it too graphic, which like it is, especially compared to the original. Mm-hmm. Uh, but now clearly, it's still commercially viable, and I think mm-hmm. pe- audiences now are more 
accepting because they're kind of desensitized to that level of gore that the kind of campiness of Evil Dead and the juxtaposition of like the humor and mm-hmm. the extreme violence uh, is kind of more timely now. It's interesting to look for, at like, rates of crime when these people were, like Mary Whitehouse was saying, you're going to ruin this generation, you're going to ruin this generation, mm-hmm. to like seeing now that crime rates actually have gone down, like violent crime has decreased overall, according to Professor Abigail Marsh here at Georgetown. Mm-hmm. But, um, and I, again, we're not saying that it's a great thing for these young children to be watching massacres and playing GTA where they can, you know, do all this stuff. But there, I feel like there's right now bigger issues going on than like some of the media. And I feel like the track record we've seen, it's obviously on a decline. So that's obviously not the issue. I feel like if you're trying to ch- change the world, maybe figure something that's actually the issue out. I feel bad. I almost feel bad saying that because like she was definitely very passionate about her cause. But like looking now, it's like, well, I don't know. Mm-hmm. You didn't do anything. And we're, even better than we were yeah there's again it really speaks to this like distortion of the issue um also i think about generational tension like again 70s was really cutting edge and really revolutionary for filmmaking Mm -hmm. so um just think about like general tension surrounding movies today like all the people like filming themselves watching Saltburn with their parents Oh gosh! If I watched you know. Shopping with my parents, I, I don't know what I would do. I'd probably just drop dead. <laughs> yeah, I think I started Saltburn with my dad, uh, and we got like forty-five minutes in. They were like, "Ah, oh, we're kind of bored," and I finished the rest of it by myself. And I've never been grateful for anything more in my life because <laughs> I think we fin- we finished just before they went to Saltburn. So, mm-hmm. and we missed the best part. Quite honestly, I'm glad we did. Yeah, no, but again, there's like this generational thing where it's like what we consider funny or ironic or whatever Mm -hmm. um is is different and also the way we choose to express ourselves Mm -hmm. is different because really horror and violence in horror is always used as a mode of expression yeah i mean sometimes the violence is just for violence sake there are definitely movies like that but also that's what the filmmaker wants to emphasize they want to emphasize practical effects they want to emphasize brutality it has something to do with their intentionality um, and so, well, I agree that there's definitely a line in terms of what children should and shouldn't watch, like you mentioned with the crime stats, mm-hmm. uh, like this moral panic surrounding violence on screen is very much blown out of proportion because mm-hmm. you can't correlate it yeah, or prove that it causes There's almost violence. a negative correlation. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Crazy. Which you can make a case that Mm -hmm. audiences have become more desensitized. We also have another uh, interesting moral panic that probably a lot of people are familiar with, uh, the satanic panic. Great alliteration. I love saying it so much. It's (laughs) fantastic. Um, But basically, this is a moral panic consisting of over 12,000 unsubstantiated cases of satanic ritual abuse starting in the U.S. in the 1980s. Um, So basically, there was a lot of accusations being thrown around, particularly at uh, musicians in the rock and especially, like, death metal genres, Mm -hmm. um, which aesthetically borrow a lot from the occult or 
uh, satanic elements. Because, mm-hmm. um, again, they, it was music that was meant to be socially subversive. Yeah. Um, but then these accusations were lobbied against them. And it's no different than, like, people accusing Doja Cat of, like, selling her soul to the devil, right? Yeah. Um, and the aesthetics of her new album feed into that because it's a button she can push in society that triggers this certain reaction um, that makes the art provocative and, uh, you know, kind of pokes fun at the entire idea of labeling something as socially deviant. I think that this is really an interesting concept, especially because, um, like, people aren't super religious anymore. Mm -hmm. There's the, the population of people who strictly adhere to Catholicism, Christianity, all this kind of stuff, um, is detrimentally lower than Mm -hmm. what we've seen, especially in the 70s and 80s. Mm -hmm. But this idea of the devil and ghosts and, like, these Christian concepts being used in horror is still evokes a very, not primal, but very, like, heavy response. Definitely. Um, In, like, the 70s, 80s, you get films like The Omen, for instance, where uh, basically the family uh, has a child who turns out to be the Antichrist, right? In that sense, it's an evolution from Rosemary's Baby, but in this case, it's this satanic presence within the family that starts by corrupting the children and then moves to subvert the entire nuclear family structure. That's a lot like the American Horror Story. Um, I think like Murder House has like draws on those kinds of themes, and definitely Apocalypse does. But and it's still like I love I still love those movies with like say not not necessarily Satan, but like the demons, the devil worship, cults, and everything. I like them a lot more than I like Murder, like, like um, that kind of stuff. At least Paranormal, because pretty much most Paranormal, I think it just recently um, started to become more secular um, mm-hmm. with the new Exorcist. His house started it started moving past like Christian Western culture into ex- looking into more diversity and exploring more, which is interesting. Yeah, I think definitely as we see like growing pluralism, but also like agnosticism in the U.S., um, there is going to be a greater emphasis on getting religious horror to appeal to a broader audience. The main reason why films that play on tropes of Satanism or Catholicism work is because they uh, assume that because we have a Christian majority in this country, or we had a Christian majority, um, that those topics would be especially provocative Mm -hmm. for the general public. Uh, So now I think we're seeing uh, an expansion of that. Uh, as films try to be marketable to more demographics. Yeah. And definitely a lot of these bands and the music really lean into that. I think it's called Sublimation. Mm -hmm. Um, A couple different bands that did that. And then you mentioned Ozzy, who Mm -hmm. ate a live bat on um, stage one time. Definitely very much... um, I don't know if you call that just disturbed <laughs> or satanic, but it's something. He did something. You know, with it's that. performance. It's performance. Yeah. He calls it art house. We call it mental illness. He's patient number nine. <laughs> so, as we're tracing the history of censorship in film, 
uh, I think we need to be conscious of like the expectations that we as a modern audience are putting on films from the 60s and 70s I agree. Um, in terms of their effects, but also the social context in which they were made. Because mm-hmm. um, I don't think we're ever going to have the experience of seeing something like Psycho or like The Exorcist mm-hmm. for the first time because we've seen all of the subsequent films that were influenced by these movies um, and that also borrowed from their depictions of violence and took them to further extremes using new technology. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's really interesting as we look at, especially post Hays Code censorship, it's that this is no longer something that's being imposed by the film industry, but rather by concerned members of the public. Yeah. Um, so we have these moral panics because really that's all we can do when attempting to restrict uh, expression through artistic means. Uh, however, because these are unregulated means of trying to control what can be depicted in media, again, it gives horror directors these buttons that they know they can push. They know mm-hmm. that people are concerned about the traditional family structure, traditional values, um, protecting the children, and that's why I think we see so many horror movies and horror media about uh, the corruption of mm-hmm. the family structure or about uh, satanic rituals. Um, basically anything that would kind of trigger the general public against the film produces the kind of horrified reaction that these directors are trying to achieve. Mm-hmm. Um, So I think we're going to end here. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you next time. Yeah, we're so excited to keep making this for you.